We are resuming our study in the book of Hebrews, our verse-by-verse study, and so please turn there to chapter 10. Chapter 10, our text for this evening will be from verses 5 to verse 10, but let's read from verse 1 as verse 5 is picking up in mid-context of verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, let me read God's word to you. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they, not, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor you have taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in you. So we answer as the Apostle Peter once did, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We pray that you would feed our souls this evening. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in our last time together in the book of Hebrews, we recounted four reasons why the Old Testament sacrificial system was inadequate to remove the guilt of sin. The emphasis of the author's argument was that the sheer repetition of the sacrifices proved inadequate to remove sin. If anything, it heightened sin. It raised the consciousness of sin as sacrifices were made year by year. All the old system could do was to remind people of their dilemma, but it could never solve it. For, the, for how can the bloods of bulls and goats take away sins? It is impossible. For no animal is an adequate substitute for a human being. So when you see the first word in verse 5, therefore, oh, that therefore has potent force. Because after explaining that repetition of the sacrificial system demonstrated its impotency and inadequacy, and reinforcing it bluntly by saying that it is impossible to take away uh, the blood of bulls to take away sin, he sets forth now the whole rationale for Jesus entering to the world to be our Redeemer and offering himself as a sacrifice once for all. From the perspective of the author of Hebrews, Christ's entrance into the world has epical, earth-altering effect. Christ's coming ended the old covenant system, and the new order has been inaugurated to replace it. Now, we as a church living in the modern day may take this for granted and think that the freedom in which we worship Christ today is and always has been, but this is only because of what Christ has done. And so at the very end of verse 9, in one of the most, interp- most important interpretive verses, 
to understand the whole story of the Bible, it says he takes away the first in order to establish the second. That is, he removes the old covenant and the new covenant is put in place to supersede it. This has always been the purpose of God for the old system to be abolished so that he may establish the new covenant. This new reality will prepare the way for the exhortation starting in verse 19, that as believers in the new covenant, to live out this new reality with all the privileges that we've been given in Christ. You see, for the author of Hebrews then, Christ is at the center of the purposes of God. And Christ, therefore, must be the center of our lives. The benefit of a book like Hebrews is the constant reminder that we must keep looking to Christ. The author of Hebrews knows something of the greatest need for sinners like us. That is to see Christ in the scriptures through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And so he puts forth Christ in all of his beauty, in all of the intricacies of his work, in the splendor of his redemption, so that we might taste and see and be captured by him. Now, beloved, we need to see and we need to know with greater conviction that there is a direct relationship between seeing more of Christ and being drawn closer to Him. The more we discover the infinite excellencies of His person and work, the greater will be our devotion. The more complete and enduring will be our obedience, the more vibrant our worship will be. This is what we're after in this sermon. And in every sermon in the book of Hebrews, to be engaged in great thoughts of Christ, that our hearts may be inflamed with a great love for Christ, that our bodies will be animated for service for Him, and that our lips may be consecrated for greater praise to Him. Now, in an effort to do so, I have just two grand points. One of them, I want you to notice, is what the Father desires. Having affirmed that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins in verse 4, the writer goes on to contrast the true sacrifice of Jesus that can Take away sin. Now our writer, once again, goes to the Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. Now as we have studied Hebrews thus far and carefully tracing the arguments from the author in unfolding the preeminency of Christ over Judaism, we have been impressed by the fact that at every crucial point, this proof has been furnished from the Old Testament scriptures. When, the, when affirming the superiority of the Son over the angels, Appeals were made to Psalm 97.7. When insisting on the superiority of Messiah over all the works of God's hands in Hebrews 2, Psalm 8.4-6 was cited. When declaring the superiority of Christ's priesthood over Aaron's, Psalm 110.4 was quoted several times. When pointing out the superseding of the old covenant with the new, Jeremiah 31.31 was referred to. And when it comes to demonstrating the superiority of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ over the Old Testament sacrificial system, he quotes Psalm 46 to 8 as the best proof to show the reality that puts aside the shadow of the old sacrificial system. Now, not only does a writer quote Psalm 46 to 8, but he takes the words of the psalm and he places them on the lips of of Jesus prior to his coming into the world. In Psalm 40, 
you'll see that in the, in the inscription, a psalm of David. But the emphasis of the writer of Hebrews is that Christ is the virtual author of Hebrews, of, I'm sorry, Psalm 46 to 8. If you look at Hebrews 10 verse 5, he said, referring to Christ. Then in verse 7, I said. Then in verse 8, after Christ saying. Then in verse 9, then he said. Friends, we must realize that all Psalms, all 150 of them, in one way or another, in one degree or another, find their ultimate fulfillment in David's greater son. Just like when we read Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see those words on the lips of Jesus, and we see that those words can only be fulfilled by Jesus in a way that David can never fulfill. Well, that is much the same with Psalm 46 to 8. David could only say, behold, I have come to do your will imperfectly because of his sinful nature before his creator. However, when Christ speaks these words, they are fitting and altogether appropriate for the Son of God who has come in the flesh to do his Father's will. And in these verses from Psalm 40, it is as if the author allows us to overhear a divine conversation with the Son, with the Father, and their agreement in a work of redemption and the salvation of His bride, the church. And in it, we are taken back to a point before the foundation of the world, and we are permitted to learn something of the counsels of the triune Godhead. Now here we learn that the history of redemption finds its roots in an eternal covenant between the persons of the Godhead. In other words, this covenant provides the foundation for our glorious salvation. Now, theologians have sometimes referred to this arrangement as a covenant of redemption or a pactum salutis, a pact of salvation. You say, I I've never heard of such a thing as an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Well, a number of passages of Scripture point to the fact that the plan of redemption was eternal. But they also indicate that it was a plan made in the form of a covenantal agreement. Now, remember from our study in Hebrews how we define covenant as a solemn agreement where some benefits are assured on the fulfillment of certain conditions. Or well, our passage in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 40, 6-8, gives us one of the insights into the solemn agreement with the Father and the Son prior to Christ entering the world. Verse 5, Therefore, when He comes in the world, He says, the one who is speaking before us is the second person of the Trinity. It is He who had always been in the Father's delight. When Jesus then, quoting Psalm 46 to 8, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, it is demonstrating the perfect knowledge of the Son concerning the mind and the will of the Father. What then does the Son know what the Father desires and wills? Well, we first learn negatively what the Father does not desire. What did the Father not want? Sacrifice and offering, it says, you have not desired. Now, this is expanded in verse 6. In Holborn offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then, to make a point even more emphatic, 
he repeats himself once more and he uses the four sacrificial expressions to give one powerful, comprehensive picture of the Old Testament sacrifices. As he says in verse 8, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them. But you may be wondering, but in the Old Testament, God is the one that is commanding Israel to bring sacrifices. Verse 8 even says, which are offered according to the law. So God has prescribed them. How then could it be said that he does not desire them? The text is not repudiating ritual sacrifices. Rather, it is affirming that ritual acts in and of themselves are meaningless. God is not interested in empty ritual. When God legislated the sacrifices, He intended that the ritual be the outer expressions of an inner faith. A sin offering then without heart confession or a dedication offering without genuine words of a heart that is devoted to God is worthless. Now, if we were to go back to the beginning of human history, we see that God looked with favor on the offering that Abel brought him, but with disfavor on Cain's offering. What was the difference? Why was Abel's offering the fat portions of some of the firstborn of the flock acceptable and the offering of Cain some of the fruits of the soil unacceptable? Well, in Hebrews 11.4, we get the answer. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commanded as a, commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Here we learn that God does not have an aversion to offerings presented to him, but that sacrifices apart from a life of faith and obedience to the will of God is an abomination. And I'm sure that you who are students of God's word Know that sacrifices without heart obedience are repudiated all throughout the Old Testament. We think of those words from the prophet Samuel when he stripped Saul of his kingship because of his disobedience to obey God's orders when it came to the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15.22. It says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. We think of Micah, when the prophet asked if sacrifices are really what God wants, he answers in Micah 6, 7, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, And to walk humbly before your God. We see the same thing in Hosea 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The practice of ritual sacrifice apart from heart obedience. Misses God's intention for the sacrificial system. Now the same is true of today's ritual acts. Your singing of the doxology. Participation in the Lord's Supper, your tithes and offerings, your prayer meetings, your all-star retreats, none of these matter unless you are keeping God's commandments. For God primarily wants the worshiper, not just the gift. And if he has the worshiper, 
he will also have the gift given in the right way. And so you remember David, he confesses in Psalm 51, 16, 17, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. David would have been glad to present 10,000s of rams and goats if this was the case. But he knew that no form of a burnt sacrifice was a satisfactory propitiation. David was able to see what the sacrifices represented from the type to the antitype, from the shadow to the reality that can only produce inward grace. So he says, you, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God didn't need the animals. He desired a contrite heart, which is what the sacrifices was meant to signify. And so these statements in Psalm 40, they need to be understood in that light. Did God want sacrifices? Yes, for he legislated them. But he wanted what the sacrifices were designed to represent, an obedient heart. But you see, this obedient heart to the will of God was precisely what the old covenant could not provide. The Mosaic Covenant could only remind them of their sin and like a schoolmaster could only instruct them of the need of a Savior. But it was only as the Westminster Confession of Faith makes clear, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and men, the prophet, priest, and king. It pleased God the Father in His eternal purpose to appoint and ordain the Lord Jesus to be the mediator between God and men. And here we see this wonderfully brought out in this expression, but a body you have prepared for me. Now again, the Son is in, in acknowledging what the Father has done, preparing for Him a body. In the eternal councils, the Father appointed a Son to be a mediator and that by becoming made in the likeness of men because what the Father desires is perfect obedience. He prepared then a body for the Son, a body formed by the Holy Spirit without taint of the original sin, but a body nonetheless very capable of knowing intimately and experientially the griefs and the agonies and the sorrows of men, and a body in which he could honor God and obey God, even obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. As the Puritan John Owen says, although the human nature was the nature of the Son of God, not of the Father, yet it was the Father who prepared that nature, and who filled it with grace, and who strengthened, acted, and supported it in the whole course of obedience. The Father then prepared a body for the eternal Son so that by virtue of the body, He could obey the Father in perfect obedience and taste death for everyone and so to give glory to God. This is what the Father desires. He is pleased with an unfaltering trust and obedience of His eternal Son and from all of His children. Now, we have covered what the Father desires. Well, let's move on to what the Son 
performs through the Spirit. We've seen how in the eternal covenant of redemption, the Father called the Son, prepared a body for Him to save sinners for the sake of His glory. But you see, this is just one side of the equation. The Father appointing and desiring is one thing. But the Son's acceptance of the Father's call to save sinners, to take on a body, to bear the sins of fallen sinners, all of that must be voluntary. If Jesus did not voluntarily accept the terms of the covenant, well, salvation could not be accomplished. Well, I call your attention to verse 7. After declaring for the second time, sacrifice for sin, you have taken no pleasure, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Oh, friends, you need to hear this as an expression of readiness and a willingness of the Son to do all that has been ordained by the Father to make full satisfaction of sin. Here is a joyful and intense eagerness. The coming of the Son to accept the Father's appointment as the mediator to pour out His life unto death was a thing to Him of exceeding willingness. Christ was not forced or coerced into action. He came willingly to save the lost. As Stephen Charnock notes so well, His will was as free in consenting as His Father was in proposing. Behold, says Christ, I have come I have come to do your will, O God. Now we said that it was the Father that prepared a body for the eternal Son. But it was the Son speaking this in verse 5. When He comes in the world, speaking of the before He comes in His incarnation to be made flesh, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It speaks of His willingness to do the Father's will. I want you to turn back with me to Psalm 40. I want you to remember the way that it is rendered in Hebrews verse 5. Psalm chapter 40. I want you to notice the way it reads in Psalm 40 verse 6. It says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Now to us that appears to be totally different translations. But remember, the author of Hebrews is translating this for the hearers who are Greek-speaking and using the Septuagint to do so. And translators often need to do interpretation. Does this expression, my ears you have opened, mean anything to you? Or more literally, it's ears you have dug for me. Well, it's a Hebrew idiom. An idiom is a figurative expression, and when you try to carry it over to another language, you cannot do it literally. Now, any of you that speak more than one language know that if you speak in idioms, it doesn't make any sense. So we have to interpret the idioms to understand. I was reminded of this as Pastor Ian Kwan, the guest speaker, told me that my son, D'Angelo, was soon going to be in Korean, chanbak, which is literally cold rice. Cold rice doesn't really mean anything. It was just cold, right? But he's saying that he's going to be the soon neglected and forgotten one because the new sheriff is coming to town in our family. Well, you see, the, the focus that, you, that I want to focus on, the Hebrew idiom, is the ears. But it actually refers to the whole person. It's a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole. As our modern expression says, all hands on deck. It means that hands 
signify the wholesalers. Or when we look at someone's car and we say, nice wheels, man, we mean the wheels designate the whole car. And so when David says, my ears you have opened, he means that if God has the ear, then the whole person is listening to God's instructions. The psalmist's point is that God has made him in such a way that he would hear and do what the Lord wanted. It's very similar to what the prophet Isaiah says. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 50, 40 to 4 to 5. Isaiah 50, 4 to 5. There the prophet Isaiah says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And so just as the ear is the member of a body whereby we obey and hear the commands to obey, so the body was prepared by the Father for the Son so that He could obey and render submission unto Him. You see, in Christ's divine nature alone, it was impossible for Him who was co-equal with the Father to come under the law, to appease the Father's wrath for sin. Therefore, the Father prepared for him another nature. But it was the Son who, upon entering the world, taken on human flesh, on several occasions declares that he came to do the Father's will. Jesus said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And accomplish his work. John 4, 34. His body then was prepared for the Father's service and will. And we overhear Jesus then prior to coming into the world saying to his Father, sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. Oh, what a wonderful picture this is of our Lord's delight and obedience to his father's business. And at the same time, it's a picture of the father's delight in preparing a body for his son for our sake and for his glory. You know, I cannot help but think of that statement from a country preacher about death. He said, if I knew that I was going to die, I'd never go near that place. I love that statement. I think it's one of the greatest statements that someone has made, but how true it is, right? The Lord Jesus was a master of fate. He came and he came willingly to give his life as a ransom for many. John's gospel brings this out beautifully as Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. John 10, 18. Further down in John's gospel, moments before Jesus' crucifixion, the Son of God prays to the Father, Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It is much the same in Hebrews. A body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. Now this is really the unique thing about the offering of Jesus. It was a willing offering of, of himself in obedience to the Father. And that is what is ultimately what has made this sacrifice acceptable. It was a sacrifice not of an unwilling animal, but it was a sacrifice of one who took our nature in order that he might bear our sin. 
And through his life, he might live in total obedience to the Father. And that obedience would find its ultimate expression in laying down his life for his people. Brothers and sisters, what an encouragement is this. That our Lord voluntarily went to the cross and came to this earth, stripped of his glory as a servant of servants. But how do, how do we fit this idea of Christ's willingness to die with the fact that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked for the cup of God's wrath to pass from him. You remember that? Does this make his death an unwilling death? By no means. Now, several things must be kept in mind as we consider this question. Firstly, the son had for eternity known the love of the father towards him, not only in eternity, but also in time in his human nature. The idea of the father's wrath being unleashed upon him explains the nature of Jesus' threefold request in the garden to remove this cup from me. But secondly, if Jesus had not wished for that cup to be removed from him, we may indeed question the humanity of Jesus, and we may even conclude that he had little or no comprehension of the dreadfulness of that cup. However, it was his perfection in his humanity, coupled with his perfect knowledge of his Father's holiness, that caused him to tremble at the thought of being made sin. But thirdly, there was an active and joyful submission to the Father's will in the garden. Because not for a single moment did Jesus ever rebel in the garden. And though this dreadful darkness and agony surrounded him, his will remained surrendered to the Father. And though Jesus speaks as one whose fear was awakened, but not as one whose faith was shaken. Each prayer began, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. And each prayer ended, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, our Lord's desire of the Father's will was even more, but what you will is at the very heart of Jesus' prayer and submission. One church father, Hilary of Poitiers, captured the essence of Jesus' prayer. He says, as a human being, he prays in a human manner that the cup may pass away. But as God from God, his will is in unison with the Father's effectual will. Now, in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam, God asked, Adam, where are you? But Adam hid himself, trembling behind the trees of the garden. Now, in a sense, the same question was repeated in Gethsemane, and this second Adam, this last Adam, did not try to hide. He did not need to. His whole response was resolutely, here am I. Jesus is essentially saying, here am I. I have come to do your will. Father, I willingly drink this cup by your command. Father, I'll drink it all. I'll come to do your will. This prayer from Jesus in the garden must be understood as a prayer to the Father who by the boundless riches of His sustaining grace was able to meet the, uh, His Son and give Him a spirit of obedience and a zeal to His Father's will. It was a prayer that God the Father would strengthen Him that He might give Himself as a sacrifice to God. It was a prayer of help and preservation to obey the whole will of God. You see, Jesus' whole crushing anxiety was that he would not fail nor waver from his obedience until he has done the will of God with heartfelt devotion. 
Beloved, this is a truth. It's not appropriate for me to sermonize for you, to tell you some practical things you need to do. Rather, this is a truth that calls for meditation and adoration. In fact, beloved, we should be humbled by the fact that Jesus humbled himself to death more willingly than sinners like us receive eternal life. If you have yet to receive eternal life, consider your unwillingness. And then look at the eager willingness of Christ to save sinners such as you. There is absolutely nothing that should attract Jesus to take on this lowly body and suffer and die on the cross. Nothing in the heinousness of sin itself that that attracts him to take it upon himself and pay that price of sin. But he is willing. And if you're still unwilling, consider his willingness to save you and come to him at once. But there's more in what the Son performs through, his, through the Spirit. Not only was there a willingness to be the sin bearer, but there was a very conscious obedience from Jesus from the Scriptures. And so the Lord Jesus, prior to His incarnation, He says, that if you go back to Hebrews, prior to saying, I've come to do the will of God, He says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of Me. What He was about to do, had been fully written in advance in the scroll. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Surely Jesus has in mind the books of Moses, the Torah, in which the will of God and the way of obedience were written to point to Jesus' perfect obedience. For Jesus himself says in John 5, 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Everything speaks of the Lord Jesus, not only Moses, but the book of the prophets, the Psalms, all the scriptures speak of him. But beyond all the prophecies that foretold the coming of the Messiah, when Jesus says in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, no doubt Jesus has in mind that eternal covenant he made with the Father. He has in mind before time was created, when there was no day, when there was no season of life, when all that existed was the triune God in loving fellowship with one another and in mutual agreement to pledge their duty in salvation of a people that would bring God glory. As Zechariah 6.13 tells us, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And speaking of the solemn agreement between the triune Godhead, you remember it was Jesus that says to the Father in John 17.24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Or in 1 Peter 1.20, where the Apostle Peter, speaking of the Lord Jesus, says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in the last times for the sake of you. The Son was in perfect communion and alignment with the will of the Father from before the foundation of the world. All this to say, that this eternal covenant before the foundation of the world was in the Savior's knowledge so that in the fullness of time when God sent forth His Son, Jesus would come to the earth to accomplish a purpose that rules and bulls and lambs could not achieve. Our Lord came to carry out His sacred agreement with the Father for He knew what would please Him. And so knowing that in the scroll of the book it is written of me, he comes to fulfill exactly the terms of the Father for him recorded in the eternal covenant. Matthew Henry aptly comments, 
that this should endear Christ and our Bibles to us, that in Christ we have the fulfilling of the Scriptures. Now what a motivation this is for us, not only to read our Bibles, but to highly prize it. Because in the Word we have the fulfillment of Christ in every line and in every syllable, not only in time, but also before time was me. Finally, in looking in what the Son performs through the Spirit, we want to look at Christ's wondrous achievement. Jesus says repeatedly in Hebrews, Behold, I have come to do your will. And what is the effect of that will? Well, the author puts it this way. Look at verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This gives a complete picture of what the Son performed in offering Himself to the will of God. It was the will of God that Christ would offer Himself to be vicarious. That is, that He would secure the salvation and consecration of His people. Jesus did not only come to offer Himself, but to offer Himself for the sheep. The Good Shepherd gives His life for the sheep. Now here, we must give pause to this wondrous achievement, you see the word we in verse 10. It demonstrates that all believers are included. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The perfect obedience of the Son to the will of the Father is seen in its ultimate form. God the Father was pleased with the death of His Son so much that His death is never described as a foul stench in the nostrils of God, but rather as a fragrant offering because it provided atonement for sin and for sinners to be made fit in the presence of God. Beloved, this is what sanctification means here in verse 10. It refers to the inward cleansing from sin and a consecration of the self to a life of service to God so that they can offer Him acceptable worship by Christ's achievement. We were made holy so that our bodies are fit to live to please God in everything we do. And here's the best part of it. This accomplishment by Jesus is once for all. It is final. It is finished. It is a done deal. The Father's will is done. And it is done by the eternal Son through the eternal Spirit. By this will, we have been sanctified. I echo what the Dutch reformer Wilhelm Sobrackel says, How blessed and what a wonder it is to have been considered and known in this covenant, to have been given by the Father to the Son, and by the Son to have been written in His book, and to have been the object of the eternal mutual delight of the Father and the Son to save you. The Father and the Son in these eternal covenant, they were not moved to choose us and to sanctify us on the basis of foreseen faith and good works. They were not moved by compulsion or coercion like some cold piece of business. But we must remember that in each and every step, an element of this eternal covenant is bathed in love of the triune God. Now, for those of you who are at the retreat, and you probably have noticed, I couldn't help but notice, the Bible verse that was plastered in huge letters 
in front of the sanctuary from Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Oh, beloved, think of it. Love moved the Father and love moved the Son to love you with an everlasting love. And if you are a Christian here today, then from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit set His love upon you. Now, I'm sure I've used this illustration before somewhere. Forgive me if I have, but it serves this point well. But once, there was a land that was ruled by a wicked prince. And he came from a foreign country and enslaved all the people of the land and made them miserable with hard labor in his coal mines across the deep canyon. Now, the wicked prince built a massive trestle for the trains that carried his slaves across the, the, the canyon and the mines each morning, and it was heavily guarded. But two men were still free in the kingdom, one old and the other young. And they lived on an inaccessible cliff overlooking the trestle. They hated the trestle. And at last, they resolved together to blow it up and destroy the slave labor of the enemy prince. They planned and they prayed and they reminded themselves of the reality of heaven. The night came when the deed would be done. Their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. It would be possible to time the trek of the trestle ground so that the explosive could be carried quickly to that vulnerable spot on the trestle. But there would be no time for the carrier of the explosives to return because it was certain that he would be seen and the plan would fail if he tried to return. And so to make sure that the trestle blew up, the two men agreed that the young man would detonate it by hand on the trestle. He would blow up with it. But they believed in heaven. And they loved the people of the land. And so the honor of the sacrifice made their hearts leap for joy. And the hour finally came. They folded up the map of their strategy, stood from their table, embraced each other. And when the young man got to the door, he turned with the explosives strapped to his back, looked at the old man, and he said, I love you, Father. And the old man took a deep breath. With joy, he said, I love you too, son. Now, all human analogies fail at some point when depicting God and his eternal purposes. But be that as it may, we see in this the delight and love of the Father for His Son and the love of the Son to the Father in obeying His will for the sake of saving souls, for the honor and glory of God. And beloved, if the roots of our salvation then stretches back to eternity, and if that salvation came as a result of the love of the Father and the Son to love us with an everlasting love, how then must you live? You must surrender your all to him and confess the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You must say to God every day of your lives, here I am, Lord. I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You see, Jesus' delight to obey the Father's will is the foundation and essence of true sacrifice and worship that God desires from us. God does not want animal sacrifices. He does not want the mere motions of your outward worship. What He wants and still wants is a faith 
driven obedience. As Charnock, once again, as I quote him, says, one spiritual believing breath is more delightful to God than millions of altars made up of the richest pearls and smoking with the costliest oblations. Let me ask you very plainly. Is there something you know that God wants you to do, but you have been unwilling? Is there something God wants you to do, but you have been unwilling? Perhaps it is a confession to make. Perhaps it is a sin to forsake. Perhaps it is wealth or money to give. Or it may be a commitment to fulfill. Whatever it may be, we must come with a broken and contrite heart and in the name of Jesus Christ and say with heartfelt devotion, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we stand amazed that your will from before the foundation of the world was accomplished in the fullness of time when you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might redeem those, he might redeem those who are under the law. We stand amazed that at the very root of our salvation was the everlasting love of God, three in one. And we stand amazed at the willingness of Jesus Christ to be the mediator, knowing what it would cost him and what it would cost the Father to do so. Oh, forgive us, O Lord, of many things, most of which is our unwillingness to obey and love you. Oh, give us a broken and contrite heart that desires, above all, to do your will. Thank you for the once-for-all sacrifice whereby we have been sanctified, fit to serve you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.